This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, I'm I'm getting really worried about you. Well, that's I have that's not the first time I've heard that. No, but like you're just wearing a loincloth. I think this I think self-isolation has really gotten to you. Well, it's also not the first time I've heard that. And oh. uh, I don't know. You've never worn a loincloth? It's it's pretty freeing. Uh, the closest I've ever come is wearing a kilt. And even that, I don't feel comfortable with when I sit down. I never know how to put my legs. We just squat. It's just, he just squat. I'm so out of shape. I can't even do one squat. That's a, that's a truth. That's not even a joke. I can barely do one squat. Oh, I've been exercising, so I'm not going to comment, but... Uh, <laughs> Your glutes are amazing. Well, you know, I, uh, I learned about dead butt syndrome, which I had, oh. which is that uh, when you don't use your legs properly, your back and your hamstrings take over the function of your glutes and your glutes deteriorate. Huh. And so when I started working out, I had to do butt-specific exercise to learn how to turn on the muscle again. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I'm learning that all of my exercising, I have to start at the base base because there's so many atrophied certain muscle groups that are overtaken by others that have been compensating. I've had to rebuild everything from scratch. You know something else that's a little bit weird now that you did your little turnaround there to, to show me. Um, why do you have Juicy on the back of that loincloth? In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still Dave. And I'm the machine. It's a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. For whatever reason, the machine is laser focused on 1999. And today we get to talk about the Disney animated film Tarzan. I think we need to start off with basically your relationship with Tarzan, the character, and then layer on your relationship with Tarzan, the movie, the animated movie from 1999. Well, Tarzan and I go way back. I so, remember yeah. we were hanging out at the coffee shop. No, I um, I don't know. Tarzan, I think, was cool 
you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast about whether things hold up. So mm-hmm. I guess we'll get to that. But growing up, I don't know if I had a, because I'm just trying to remember if there was a show or anything to do other than maybe loose references from like Looney Tunes and other, you know, like yeah. kids shows. But I don't think there was a specific thing. I, I think. Have you ever read a single one of the Tarzan books? I'm going to say maybe. I can tell you very, very confidently I have not. Again, no of the character. Never read any of the actual books. It's not. Is it Arthur Conan Doyle that did those two? No, that often uh, often gets mixed up. uh, That People think it's Arthur Conan Doyle for whatever reason. It's the other three uh, named person, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Ah, right. Oh, yeah. Who also did John Carter of Mars. Oh, interesting. yeah. Yeah, that movie also needed help. I'm I'm kind of right there with you. Like my knowledge of Tarzan is really through parody or like I don't know acknowledgments from the past. Like I, we were kind of joking before I pushed record because we do record these of uh, Carol Burnett doing her Tarzan yell. Like that was a thing that happened. Even though I'm kind of too young to really know Carol Burnett, but my mother and father show me all the old <laughs> specials that they had taped off of the TV and stuff like that. So this is really my first probably introduction to the character in a film was this version, the Disney version. And for me, Tarzan is probably like B level public domain properties. And what I mean by that is that it seems literally every other year you have someone doing something with Peter Pan or Robin Hood. Yeah. And so Tarzan does get remade every so often, but not as often as like some of those other things that are in the public domain for whatever reason. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the Tarzan yell is part of the cultural milieu. Everybody oh, yeah. kind of knows what that means, even though in recollection, I don't, yeah, there was no big movie or television show in my youth that was centered around Tarzan. It's not like I had a Tarzan toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would have all come through parody. I, I mean, bring it to this movie, I think... I think Disney was starting to lose its legs a little bit here, but yeah. um, I think I was kind of excited about the idea of a Tarzan movie that was going to be cool, for lack of a better word. But Well, I uh, think for me too, I guess talking a little bit about representation, you know, when they talk about the Disney renaissance that happened in the late 80s to early 90s, uh, I guess Aladdin would be the outlier, but most of those were princess stories. We were going through Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Um uh, even if you want to push that into like Pocahontas and stuff like that, a lot of it I felt was was female focused. Nothing wrong with that. That's how Disney literally built its empire was on princess stories. And this was the one coming along that was like, oh, we're going to be focusing more on a male lead. It's this kind of thing that we kind of know about in the culture. And it did seem to be an interesting blend of what Disney was flirting with for a while. The uh, combination of hand drawn animation with computer animation, kind of mixing those two together a little bit so i was down with it i also wanted to see it being like the huge rosie o'donnell fan i was in the late 90s uh as she introduced me to musical theater that sort of thing so i wanted to go and see it because she was a voice in this as well uh but i was definitely becoming disillusioned with disney i think after a couple of not so great films at least for teenagers i was like i'm kind of i'm kind of out (laughs) with disney and i think this may have been i don't know for sure it was either this one or maybe Atlantis that was like, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to watch Disney films. And then I kind of pieced out for like the next decade. You know, it's interesting. I would like to, it might be the 
the princess and the frog <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh it would be interesting to pull up the sequence yeah running through this like you mentioned i wonder if there is a, a bit of a correlation of age and maturity oh so the has to be. golden age is yeah like w- we kind of fit into where disney was kicking serious ass and so we were young enough to buy into Lion King. Like I have no idea what a 30-year-old when Lion King came out would have thought of the Lion King. They may have harped back that right. this is no Sleeping Beauty or whatever. But <laughs> No, sure, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like the end of the 90s and this is, I think uh, Pixar is starting to take over and there's a run of movies that aren't even that bad, but uh, that I, I don't think I watched until, well, definitely after Clamshell uh, VHSs came out of them. I, I wasn't watching them in the theater. That's for sure. Yeah, like because there is a there is a whole period of Disney films that I have never seen. Like I know there's some people that are younger than me that claim Emperor's New Groove is like one of the best Disney films of all time. It's I don't know. Have, have never seen it. It's pretty uh, good. Same thing with like Open Range and Brother Bear and all the other stuff that they were bringing out there Didn't in the early 2000s. It, I just yeah, I just never Hercules is pretty with. good. Holds up it's, pretty well. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> I get pretty negative with late '90s Disney films for Holy whatever reason, shit, and yet I, I love classic dude. Disney, which nobody seems to like anymore. But well, there, the problem with classic, Di- I mean, I I was pretty happy with the. Uh, I mean, they did a better restoration than George Lucas did mm. uh, in all of his rebuilds of the Star Wars franchise. But the story, the storylines, I mean, there's a lot to read into. I mean, even yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we yeah, that's maybe a different podcast, but. Uh, yeah. A conversation that should be had about uh, you know, well, women's we, rights. We can get and- there. <laughs> uh, Why don't we do that? Let's practice our Tarzan yells. And in the meantime, we'll go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll talk about the Disney film Tarzan. Hey, everyone. Just Kyle here again. Ready to tell you about some of our sponsors that make this show possible. Uh, I do also want to say at this point that Black Lives Matter, and if you don't hear Dave and I talk about it, because just to pull the, the curtain back, we recorded all these episodes a few weeks ago. So that topic doesn't really come up even when things turn to relevant pieces that are happening now in society, right outside our doors. So hopefully in uh, you know a few weeks, you'll start to hear some of those be involved in the conversation. But as of right now, that's all I can say. Black Lives Matter. Go and support some locally black-owned businesses. You can donate to many different charities online. You, There are tons of resources out there if you even just do the most basic of Google searches. And I'll leave that in your hands. Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This week, we're also sponsored by the Alberta Podcast Network, which is very exciting. So let's take a listen to one of our other great shows. In the modern world, for men... 
modern society has created a reawakening of the question, what does it mean to be a man? It is not as clear-cut as it once was, and the answers are as varied, infinite, and complex as can be. This is where the podcast, Modern Manhood, comes in. Join me, Herman Villegas, as we explore how the different views of masculinity shape our daily life. For example, how the way we date, parent, school, and play are affected by the many shapes modern masculinity has its handle on us. This is the lives of men, as flawed, authentic, and complex as can be. This is Modern Manhood, a proud podcast of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. All right, Dave, how did uh, how'd that go for you? It was okay. I, I kind of enjoyed it for all of its silliness. Mm-hmm. And it, it maybe it's because I've watched this before, but even like we were talking about a little bit earlier, the storyline of being abandoned and growing up with the apes. And I mean, I'm so well aware of how that and Jane and like Tarzan mm-hmm. and Jane, like, I, yeah, all I that is this, like baked into our culture. And yeah, yet, again, so I've never watched a Tarzan movie before this. And I knew all of that going into this movie. And it's not required reading at a school level. It's not considered one of the classic fairy tales, but I feel like many people will know the core of this story. Um, I think that's maybe part of it. There is something to that. And I'm sure you can like read in whatever type of reading you want to, whether it's feminist or like um, uh, Western or whatever. I don't know. For me, there's something inherently cool about that idea about a young boy being raised. I guess it's the Jungle Book, just in a different context, right? Mowgli gets raised by the wolves. Here we have Tarzan being raised by the apes. There's something to that idea of like going back to like our beast natures and still wanting to be civilized. It's interesting you actually brought that up. And I wonder if that's why the loose Tarzan concept feels so familiar. Because the Jungle Mm. Book... A, in the Disney pantheon, was a fairly large uh, movie. Uh, whether people consider it in mm-hmm. the grouping of Sleeping Beauty, so I don't think they do. But, I, you know, I like Jungle Book. I like Robin Hood, etc. But that story is very similar to this one. and oh, yeah. uh, And they resonate. I'm just trying to think, like, if, if I have a specific connection with the man-beast concept. I, I'm sure when I was younger, you know, like... Did you read Animorphs when you were growing up? No, what's Animorph? Okay. Yeah. But it's I like a whole un- series. Anyway, it doesn't until, matter. Uh, until it was parodied in uh, Hangover, like the concept of the lone wolf and like this bestial nature of, you know, like being a man and all these kind of weird concepts. Uh, so like in 99 and I'm in my very early 20s, I might have been into that sort of thing and been more connected to wanting to like a Tarzan character. But right. I don't know. It's It was just fun. The movie was... It was fun. It was fun. I'm shrugging. Uh, I'm virtually I, I will, shrugging. I will, I will get into it. Is I feel like we might have the same rating ultimately, but we. Uh, I'm probably going to be more negative <laughs> than what it sounds like you're going to be. I, I feel that there is, as I've said before in some of the movies we've watched, I think there's actually a great movie hidden inside of this that oh, yeah. has a little bit too much fluff for me. It feels so slight, which is weird when I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening, a lot of interesting themes that they could bring up. And whether it's, they just, it's a kid's movie and they didn't want to try and push into that too much. Although Pixar would eventually, I think, be pretty bold as far as what they would consider um, available to be put into a children's movie. Um, well, it's, it's weird. This movie is pretty dark. Like it's like I agree with you. It it tries on one hand 
to stay at a surface level so that it's still fun. So they, maybe so they can incorporate a classic formula of uh, mm -hmm. counterpointing drama and comedy. But I mean, the dude at the end is hung to death. I mean, that's not a kid's movie. That's, you know, and I know right. it's a silhouette, but Jesus, like that's a, that was like a pretty, I wasn't really expecting them to. I mean, Mufasa was trampled to death. So, I mean, we, yeah, we've seen. I don't know. I, yeah, I have to rewatch The Lion King to see if it was that visually graphic. I right. think it was more implied with Simba's face. This thing had the silhouette of a hanging. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I even though he was an evil, cruel person or whatever the uh, trope is, uh, pretty hardcore, actually. They had, they had cadavers at the beginning to show the parents. You don't actually need to show the dead bodies of the parents. Y you know that they've been mauled, I think. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, but, like you, you, you can fill in the uh, the blanks there for sure. Both of you should take off your shirts. Well, let's do this here then. Let's jump into some of the the backstory. So, uh, Tarzan was released on June sixteenth, nineteen ninety nine, and there was no other major films released on that day. Trying to make way for the Disney drop that people didn't want to go up against. Currently, it is rated seven point three on IMDb, seventy nine on Metacritic, and then on Rotten Tomatoes. As per 105 critics, it is rated 89%, so oh, very shit. fresh. That's and very based on 370,000 users, it's 75%. It's available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can rent or buy it on iTunes. You can also rent it via YouTube or Google Play Movies. And, at least in Canada, you can stream it on Disney+. Plus. Not that I would know anything about Disney+, Plus, but that's what you can do. You also should be on eBay and look for a clamshell a edition. A clamshell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those were... Boy, this would have been like one of the... I mean, well, maybe not. I was going to say this would be one of the later clamshells probably because they were transitioning to DVD around this time. But didn't the clamshells come out around this time? Like, I don't think that they were originally released like in the early 90s as clamshell VHS. I feel like that was like a collector's edition marketing concept I when it was i, I feel like it, my sense is like between 93 and 98 were like the pinnacle of of those clamshells clam uh its budget was 130 million dollars what it, oh yeah <laughs> i i believe that's because uh there's so many animators that they had to hire on to do this because of the combination of of uh 3d animation and, and 2d animation it's opening it opened to 34 million dollars domestically it would go on to make 171 and internationally, it would go on to make 277 more dollars. So it totaled at $448 million in 1999. If you adjust for inflation, that's $689 million. It was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1999. So it made a lot of money. Its plot description from IMDb is, A man raised by gorillas must decide where he really belongs when he discovers he is a human. Uh, it stars Tony Goldwyn as Tarzan, Minnie Driver as Jane, and Brian Blessed as Clayton. All right, so let me tell you about Brian Blessed. Uh, I don't know if you are a Brian Blessed fan or not. I love his voice. It's like one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, October 9th, 1936 is when he was born. His voice is amazing. His first film was The Valiant... <laughs> don't fan laugh boy. at me. Uh, sorry, you're fanboying. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> His first film was The Valiant, which was released in 1962, and basically from there, he's been constantly working on TV and in movies. Perhaps you'll know him from the cult classic Flash Gordon as Prince Voltan, the winged Hawkman. But he's been in, but he's been in Doctor Who, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and a bunch of Shakespeare films, including Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. 
the ghost of Hamlet's father is what he played in that one. We've actually already seen a movie with Brian Blessed this year. He was the voice of Boss Nass in Star Wars, colon, episode one, dash, The Phantom Menace. That's the Jar Jar Binks race. The guy who gets like really mad and shakes oh, his jowls. and keeps going, yeah. that's embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, in recent years, he's lent his voice to many animated projects and video games. Upcoming is Banking on Mr. Toad. It's described as a biopic about the writer Kenneth Graham, the birth of his iconic story, The Wind in the Willows, and his life with his wife, Elsie and Alistair, their troubled young son. We've actually already heard about this film because it's going to be directed by Luis Mandoki, who also directed Message in a Bottle. So that's going to be the synchronicity that we have between those movies. Well, Did, what sound do I make for silent shaking of my head? Oh, you know, you do the boss nasty. Rah, 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 like, just like, <laughs> uh, all right, Dave, the, the machine wants you to take over. So let me send oh. this over to you here. Boop, and you boop, can boop. Uh, continue on. Oh, mini driver. Born January 31st, 1970, she began acting in her 20s, appearing, appearing in many appearing in many TV movies and guest spots on TV series. She'd have her breakout by appearing in the James Bond film Goldeneye. I didn't know she was in Goldeneye. Who's she in Goldeneye? I can't remember, uh, but oh. she does appear in it. Okay, I'll have to rewatch it, I suppose. Speaking of Bond. And then following that up with Sleepers, Gross Point Blank, and then Goodwill Hunting, for which she'd be nominated for an Academy Award. This would not be her only voice acting performance in 1999. She'd also provide the voice of Brooke Shields in the South Park movie later that year. Interesting that that's been brought up. Who knows if the machine will <laughs> Who knows? watch that. In recent years, she had a major role in the TV series Speechless. It ran for three seasons where she played the mother of three children, one of which had cerebral palsy. Mini Driver also has a music career, having released three albums since 2001. Up next is Cinderella. You think this is another one of those Disney live-action adaptations of their animated classics, but you'd be wrong. Mm -hmm. This no is another, it's another adaptation of, of Cinderella. Oh, it's actually just a Cinderella movie, not like a horror movie or something like that? Correct, yeah. Okay. Although I think the fairy godmother is being played by... Um, Billy Porter. Billy Porter, who is on the HBO series Pose, but he's also been a bunch on Broadway and does flamboyant outfits uh, and does drag a lot. Okay. Tony Goldwyn, born May 20th, 1960. Tony has had a great career on Broadway, having just finished a run in the play Network alongside Brian Cranston. However, his first ever film appearance was as Darren in the Friday, Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason lives. Do you know, interestingly enough, that I am watching all of the Friday the 13th movies right oh, now? <laughs> why? why? Uh, oh, Dave, why is such a weird question? <laughs> I become super fascinated by series, like movie series that have like a lot of sequels in them. And so then I have to figure out why. And so I just got... <laughs> So I don't know how I got down the rabbit hole and about how this and then Nightmare on Elm Street kind of cross paths because they eventually had uh, Freddy versus Jason. So I'm watching them all chronologically. So I've watched the first four Friday the 13th and the first um, Nightmare on Elm Street. I think most of the Friday the 13th movies are awful. 
just by the way, just just as an as an extension I, of that. But I can't believe we've gone from you going on the Criterion Channel and uh, <laughs> was, researching Akira Kurosawa. I to, mean, I'm still uh, doing that too, but <laughs> to but watch that, is it a, all. that is a whiplash, by the way. When you watch like Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, and then watch like Akira right after, and you're like, oh, <laughs> this is there's a very big, a difference here in the in the quality. There's a tone. I can't put my <laughs> finger on it, but. Uh, he would go on to have guest spots in some major 1980s and 1990s TV shows, Saint Elsewhere, Matlock, Designing Women, L.A. Law, and Murphy Brown. He would continue lending the voice to Tarzan in animated spin-offs, TV shows, and video games, but he'd also appear in a favorite film of this podcast, The Last Samurai. Also, The Mechanic, Divergent, and American Gun. I actually liked The Last Samurai, not historically, but I thought it was a fun movie. Sorry. I'm a Tom Cruise nut. I mean, he's, I am too, so don't, uh, don't worry. You're in good company. You're both awful company. In the last decade, you may have seen him on the TV show Scandal as Fitzgerald Grant. He appeared in all 124 episodes. Holy crap, that's a lot of episodes. Up next is Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country. Its plot description is, A young African-American travels across the U.S. in the 1950s in search of his missing father. Written by Tab Murphy, Bob Zudiker, Bob Zudiker, yeah, I don't know, Bob Zudiker, and Tony White, based on the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs. So that this episode doesn't go two hours, these three have had careers at Disney. Some of their credits include Newsies, The Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, as well as 102 Dalmatians. Yeah, not the sequel. The sequel. Hunchback was pretty good too. Isn't that Hunchback around this era too? I yeah, 96 so. or something, I want to say. Um, directed by Chris Buck and Kevin Lima. Kevin Lima was born June, tw- June 12th, 1962. He only has a few credits. However, before Tarzan, he directed a goofy movie. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just leave my break there in, please. Uh, a film <laughs> that... What? I, I, yes, say, I, I really love a goofy movie. It's great. Oh, it's interesting because Aroba just wrote a film that Kyle has a huge affection for. <laughs> he would also direct Enchanted, the Amy Adams film that starts in animation and then transitions to live action. I actually like that movie. Yeah. Some, some good uh, some good dancing that is the last film he's been a part of although as of although as of 2018 it was reported that he had signed a deal with 20th century fox to produce film projects who knows where that stands now that 20th century fox was bought by disney chris buck was born february 24th 1958 he started at disney as a character animator as a director tarzan was his first film Then he'd go to Sony Animation to co-direct Surf's Up, but he'd return to Disney to help co-direct the huge blockbuster Frozen and then its sequel a few years later. Currently, he has no future projects announced. Speaking of Frozen, have you Mm -hmm. heard of the uh, fan theory that uh, Tarzan's parents in this movie are actually the parents of Elsa and Anna? I have not, but I do know that uh, those types of theories get super strong when it's the same... I don't know, animating team behind it. They seem to, because there was a, you're talking about Hunchback here a moment ago. They had something to do with uh, Beauty and the Beast and Belle actually is in the market sequences as it's like scanning through. So they do these like little hidden things (laughs) here and there to like combine the films they've worked on. Do you remember how there was always uh, 
the playback, you know, sexual innuendo and yes. hidden things in Disney movies. Sex in the dust in, in Lion King. In Lion and, King. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Penises in the background of Little Mermaid, apparently. Well, penises should always be in the background of any <laughs> animated film. I think it's required by yeah. theatrical law. Just keep looking, guys. If you're listening to this, keep looking for penises in the there. background. So, Dave, I guess, what is your overall thing? I know you did like the the shrug when we started off with, but why don't we start with some of the positives that you have about this movie? Well, you know, classic uh, Disney pacing. I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, I, I don't know if the comedic beats all work. There's a lot of questions as far as, you know, the evolution of some of the characters and how they mature and how Tarzan relates to all this stuff and his ability to learn English in one day. And, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff like that. But I, I thought it was fun. The, the nostalgic part for me, and I remember this strongly, was um, he's rail sliding the vines. Yeah, because, he's basically doing uh, skateboarding tricks. Yeah, because like rollerblading and X Games and, you know, the sort of like street extreme sports had just kind of really taken over the popular mainstream. And I had what were called box cars, like, uh, you know, trick roller skates, oh, nice. uh, roller blades. So I remember when I watched this movie, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it's did, you have a, did you have a dead butt at that time while you had no, those on? My, my butt was quite firm at that time, nice. Kyle. I'll, uh, I'll look for some pictures. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm pretty sure uh, we get my butt on this podcast. <clears throat> uh, I mean, so I, I fear that uh, we often uh, get too far into this about like criticizing the movie that it isn't rather than it is. Uh, but I'm going to go there for just a moment. I have this opinion that the first half of this movie is actually pretty great. And I don't care anything that happens past the midpoint. I think that the true thematic resonance of this movie is what basically gets resolved by the midpoint is his relationship with like his uh, real parents versus like his adopted family. And I think that there is an interesting allegory that they could have really played around with there inside of a Dis the confines, of course, of a Disney film. But this idea of like, just because you are not biologically somebody's that they can still love you and you can still find a home there and you can still find, I don't know, uh, meaning behind that and, and, and feel safe and everything like that too. And then well, it kind of transitions into the love story, which I know kind of has to be there based on the, the original books being partly romance. For whatever reason, I just kind of checked out by that point, and it seemed super paint-by-numbers uh, by that point. And, and it could possibly be, too. I mean, we joked a little bit last week about uh, Phil Collins and uh, his, uh, uh, you know, uh, collaboration on this project. Apparently, when you look at it, he wrote five songs for this movie. And I cannot tell you what those five songs are because it's really the same song that gets played over and over and over again <laughs> throughout yeah, the you, entire movie. You guys, I was watching this with all the shit talking you guys were having mm -hmm. last week. And I don't know, for me, I, I couldn't, I kind of wanted to, to bring this up that the difference, what is the difference between Phil Collins using a, a bass melodic theme in different tones for different scenes, other than him and his voice singing different words to the same theme, then in Star Wars, John Williams using uh, like Darth Vader's march to always uh, denote uh, Imperial Army scenes or like the, the, you know, the hopeful thing. I mean, it's a film score. I, I think what you guys hate is that Phil Collins' voice is singing each of the moments, but they're 
all different words. They have different terms. They fit the. Oh, look at Mister Adult Contemporary over here. Is going to throw his hat into the ring and I kinda, defend Phil Collins. I didn't mind it. I uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it stands out particularly. This is going to be a reference that literally no one is going to understand, and I'm I'm so sorry, but it's the only thing that I can think of. So there was a like direct to video sequel to the Jungle Book called Jungle Book Two, and in there. By the way, the uh, Baloo, of course, was no longer uh, voiced by the original voice actor because they had passed away. It was done by John Goodman. But in that movie, they sing The Bare Necessities, I'm pretty sure, 29 different times. <laughs> um, and by the end of it, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, The Bare Necessities was a song from the first one. We don't need to hear it again for the 29th time. And that's what it felt like to me is it got to the point like, no, I get the, I understand the theme that you're trying to build here. And I thought it was effective the first time I heard it during that sequence of him being a baby and Kala, I want to say, is the ape's name, uh, voiced by Glenn Close, who does a great job too. All that worked for me. It was great. I thought it underscored the the the, the series well. And then when he's like flinging uh, through the the jungle and um, he's an adult and stuff like that, at that point, I'm like, I don't know if this is as thematically resonant anymore with the lyrics I, that you have provided. I'm going to suggest that you have a bias as well, being a musical theater guy. I do. I think that is my biggest thing is that when music appears like this, it should be progressing the story forward. And I feel like at a certain point, it wasn't doing that anymore. Yeah, I mean, like I could see if this were staged as either a musical or uh, based through a musical theater perspective. Of course, it's it's played out has one tone in the sense that like it's not an evolving narrative in the music itself. But I don't know. I, I personally, I just kind of tuned it out. I, I didn't really get too absorbed in whether Phil Collins uh, was singing with the correct amount of gravitas you know had altered the tone of his music enough for me to uh really feel the the thing i mean i i thought it was now, moving if, visually if it had well been peter gabriel i would have been totally fine with it <laughs> to be honest uh now just being a dick uh, yeah no i it should have been sledgehammer the entire <laughs> thing <laughs> uh no i don't know i i thought it was great when they come to that culmination where he walks into the old house i mean they're already certain plot points that are feel rushed to get you to that pivotal scene. I, the whole uh, contact with Jane and, and becoming humanized necessarily has to be rushed for a movie that's maybe an hour and a half long. But yeah. uh, And I don't know if the books delve longer into that initial communication piece because that, that would take maybe years <laughs> realistically. But, you know, so it happened in one day and now he's aware that he's a human being. Uh, I thought the hand touching thing was a great visual metaphor of, you know, looking at uh, the thing, uh, looking at the difference or the similarities. Uh, but if you take that part and make that the rest of the movie, it's not a Disney movie anymore, man. It's like a fucking drama. It's, it gets, cr yeah, it gets crushingly political. And uh, I, I know that there is obviously like a certain context of like, Hey, Disney is a corporation and they have a certain style and a certain, uh, type of movie that they like to make. I know Pixar was not owned by Disney at the time, but Pixar was really swinging for the fences as far as what animated films could be doing at that time. If we talk about it, I mean, The Iron Giant came out this same year, which is also doing something a little bit different than the Disney formula. Uh, and I think this is Disney trying to play around with that, like dipping their toe into the water because it isn't a musical, which is fine. I think that's okay to like test that out and see what that looks like. <laughs> if we could go back in time, I would, I would actually have loved to have seen 
is them really try something bold and uh, do a two-parter, which is like Tarzan 1, Tarzan 2. It would never have happened in 1999. I know I'm asking for a little bit too much here. But because I really loved almost like the silent film aspect of and maybe this is why I like Wally so much is because that's basically what that is for the vast majority of that movie is you have the, this baby and as a young kid and like him learning his skills and not understanding why like the patriarch of the of the group is like so mean to him and doesn't want him to be there. That sort of thing. I just feel like that is just more interesting to watch than a rushed romance that has to happen in basically 15, 20 minutes to be resolved by, again, a. a a villain that, I don't know, it feels like I'm not 100% sure what his end goal is just to kill a bunch of apes is what it sounds like is what he wants to do. You could make the argument that I, now, like I'm just listening to you and I'm thinking about Clayton and the movie you're proposing, Clayton's not in it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the movie you're proposing is this uh, three-hour drama of a man living amongst the apes, right? Pretty it's, much, yeah. It's a different... It's a different story, but hey, kids sit through all the Marvel movies nowadays, and I mean, what, what are Clayton, those? Isn't Clayton the counterpoint to the civility of the apes? Well, I mean, if you really look at the uh, the way things are drawn, I mean, the first bit, the the villain, quote unquote, is the leopard because the leopard returns sure. again and again and again, and the and leopard Clayton, is fair. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Clayton is actually animated. In exactly the same way as the leopard. It has the same arch in the back of his neck. He wears the same colors as what the leopard is. So I think there's this symbolism that's going on there between leopard and, and, and Clayton to be like the two villains of the piece. So that's neat. Um, I almost wish that had been even more obvious in some ways of like, like without the big massive chin or something and yeah. he had more of a feline face. Yeah. But uh, I think Clayton too, I, uh, I'm presuming that the animators are going to be drawing from 1930s. Like the idea of an explorer and a hunter in the 1930s is Clayton, this like, you know, handlebar mustache and ultra alpha males. I mean, the idea of being a human being in the uncharted, you know, pre-World War world uh, with a fucking musket or a rifle trying to kill an elephant just because I want to show how big my dick is. I mean, people still do that, but um, they present a certain way. And I think... Um, rightfully have come under huge amounts of criticism and backlash because it's it's a uh, i mean it's just unadulterated violence now is that more human correctly and truthfully sure i mean the more i at least read into sociology and history i mean human beings are disgusting we we love murdering each other and the sort of confines and morality of the modern day picture we have of a good person they're actually kind of constructed in total bullshit without uh, politics law and religion we would all be slitting each other's throats and drinking each other's bloods like blood we're we're feral in a way so mm-hmm. i thought it was kind of interesting watching this uh, you know they spend a lot like you said they've spent a lot of time in this ape family and you get to feel like for better or for worse what we project to be a better human relationship you know, loving mothers, cared for. I mean, there's a patriarch and they still have the ape, uh, sort of the gorilla, bi- uh, not biology, sociology with the alpha male and the many right. his concubines. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're all happy and they're all hanging out. They're playing tricks on each other. I don't really understand why an elephant would hang out with them, but uh, it's cute, I guess. Yeah, I mean, again, that goes down to the, the Disney formula. I, I guess I kept watching this film 
and maybe it was because of my preconceived bias because I remember not really liking it that much as a, as a teenager when I saw it for the first time is that there's these elements of past Disney films, but just done not as well. And so it's like, you're constantly doing this comparison of like, oh, okay, like the, here's this scene, but not as good as what I've seen it in the past. And I mean, talking about those, you know, the cute, cuddly animal sidekicks and stuff like that. I mean, past um, the, uh, what do they call that? The trashing of the camp scene, you know, where they, like, which is very much, again, another Phil Collins inspired thing, I'm sure, with him being a drummer, but uh, where it's just like percussion and stuff. Like, that's what the song is. That's a song break that happens in this movie. You just air quoted that. You're such a jerk. But yeah, <laughs> keep going. Um, yeah. I know. It's just like, I don't, they're just not as fully rounded or as fun to be around to say, even like an Abu from, uh, from Aladdin or any of the people from Beauty and the Beast or anything like that. It's just, okay, like they're, they're here, but do they actually do anything in the plot? I guess they save Tarzan at the end. But before that, are they really there doing anything? Not really. Well, I mean, other than, I think the, the yeah, yeah I, I think the strong point of their being included is just to develop the uh, social context so that it humanizes animals so that we can feel empathy for them. But, you know, to your point, yeah, like they struggle with trying to not make this a musical, but feeling connected that it needed to have some semblance, semblance of musicality. Yeah, so like the drumming part by breaking everything, yeah, it comes off a bit contrived. And, uh, it, you know, I think it misses, it missed the mark a little bit, but you know what's difficult for me because I'm not a writer is uh, how do you keep comedic beats in a movie that at its core is actually quite dark? I mean, if right. you're writing this movie and you know where this is supposed to go and you're supposed to keep this thing lighthearted, I think they just went, They maybe they felt intentionally they had to make it a lampoon, like a total like silliness because in the end we're going to see the end you know like there's going to be death and mayhem and murder and all this kind of shit captivity like the the scene where the the uh hilariously over over uh overdone evil characters of his uh boat his mm -hmm. crew show up with all their evil faces and you know sliding eyes and shit and then they bring out these uh cages i mean that stuff is not even foreign this is what human beings do so that's pretty dark that stuff is not what you would expect from a kid's movie. I just want to let you know that I'm rated PG-13. I mean, that that's a sliding scale. I like too. that darkness, though. I think that as, as a kid growing up, I always resonated a little bit more to the, the children's films, the ones that were advertised for kids, but they have that era, or sorry, that era of menace to them, where it's like, I feel like I'm in real danger watching this at the same time. I don't know why. I've always just been more attracted to those. I, I'm Yeah, maybe it's because my Emerson is still only like turning six. And maybe if he's, when he's 10 and can absorb in, in whatever psychological stage he's at, what the, the beats of these stories are. But, you know, my, my follow would be like, you're, you're a big Pixar fan. The last 10 years of Pixar, they're not kids' movies, man. They're, no, I agree with that. I they're agree. They're psychological, for, it's like Marvel, like they're, not just psychological forays into storytelling, but they're reflections of how fucking broken some of these writers are. They're they're so uh, personal and dark and depressing. Like it, they're not even that yeah. fun. I, uh, and I mean, even uh, not to derail this too much, I actually read this interesting uh, Twitter thread the other day about how writers, because the majority of like 
the writers are getting like the big jobs are kind of be in their their 40s maybe into their 50s so it's hilarious to watch them write teenagers because yeah. these are teenagers from the 80s not yeah. teenagers from 2020 they so might have so, just been like that's yeah. rad man <laughs> yeah so it's like it's like when you break it down it's like oh that is why people act weird in films sometimes because like you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I said my- some things written down as I was watching this movie, uh, and I don't want to say negative the entire time. So let's start off with some of the things I like. Um, I still think the animation is beautiful. I think yes. it's really well done. And I think Disney has always kind of been that way, even in movies I don't like. It's like you, <laughs> the artists behind this are, are phenomenal. It is the rare uh, Disney movie, actually, that shows blood, too, because the leopard bleeds. Uh, so that. Uh, that's this is something maybe again to that darker tone i think it, it consistently shows how the jungle is not a safe place and i think i liked that aspect of it about like this is dangerous where these people are going even the opening scene of uh elsa and anna's parents getting shipwrecked that whole first whatever it is 30 seconds or two minutes i mean that's they don't paint that as a disney fairy tale of them surviving i mean it's it shows hardship and difficulty and like even them escaping the boat is quite a frightening opening sequence uh and i mean and parallel to uh kala i can't remember but uh, uh the 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 gorilla mom losing her son to the to the leopard i mean that that scene was quite uh, nail biting you know i was i was chewing off my fingernails there was uh there's quite a lot of tension there and violence that i wasn't actually expecting when it started For, at risk of like alienating some of our listeners i'm not saying this is a positive or negative but a, an observation that i made is how much disney the corporation I can't think of a single counterexample to this where they always show guns as being a negative Guns are never shown to be a positive thing, at least in their animated films, where it's like, no, guns are bad. <laughs> uh, and any any character who uses a gun is usually like the evil person uh, inside of that narrative. And it's true here, too. It's like he Clayton is the only one who uses a gun and it's menacing and it's always in this dark, evil light that uh, that's shown in. So just interesting. Maybe that's part of maybe I was indoctrinated as a kid and that's why I have my feelings towards guns as I do now. Uh, wait, what is your feeling toward guns? That we should all have them? No, that we shouldn't have them. But. Well, it's interesting because you noticed something like that, which makes <laughs> me think secretly you want to have a gun. I- oh, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you like, trying to, like, I don't know. Uh, psychoanalyze Psychoanalyze me? me over here. Kyle, we spent a lot of time together. I, mm-hmm. I know a lot about you now. Things that you don't see. Is that a Colt in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> I have shot weapons before in Las Vegas. I, I have too. I have too. Not and in Vegas, but I have quite, shot. Uh, quite exhilarating, but fucking frightened me to death. I don't understand how anybody keeps them on their person. They're petrifying. So I agree with Disney. Fuck guns. I, I also put down here, I know that you, you've already mentioned the very ending of, of the hanging that happens. But what I really appreciated in this movie is like, this is like the greatest example I can think of that we've watched recently of showing and not telling where it's like, they are visually showing you what is happening in the story and don't have to like have a character come in and explain what just happened or have to have someone like over explain what their motivations and stuff are. We get it just by the way the animators have animated the people and even the hanging is as dark and depressing as it is. It's done in silhouette. It's done with like these lights and shadows that they're they're playing with the like tightening of the vine as it as it hits. Um, I don't know. I I love all that kind of stuff. 
bringing that up, and I agree with you, I wonder kind of to your, uh, I can't remember how you phrased this, uh, but you know, in a, how would I have remade this movie? I wonder how this movie might have played if they had just toned down the Tarzan learns English and mm. really pushed that into a visual story. Because I think you could still get away with him learning like five words, but still because they did such a great job, even with their facial emotions and their body language and they, like the animation's uh, pretty incredible in that sense. Couldn't there have been a way that they didn't have to make it into like a fully realized uh, verbalization of how Tarzan's feeling all the time, particularly because the themes of this are meant to be so primitive and baseline for human beings. Yeah, and I could maybe see people criticizing that too. But I actually sure. really love the idea if like the gorillas also did not speak in full English, where it was like, we have whatever, grab 25 words that they can communicate in like a gruff way. Those are the words that Tarzan knows too. And so those are the ones he starts speaking in English. Again, it just goes back to that visual storytelling that I just am a big fan of where Jane can do the heavy lifting of any exposition that needs to happen. And Tarzan is there to be like that visual component. If, yeah, if this was directed as a live action by, you know, Akira Kurosawa, <laughs> right. we, might, we might have seen a re-edit by someone who is, you know, a genius at uh, visual representation, I suppose. But uh, anyways, yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I thought it was beautiful. The only other thing I, I well, there's two other things I wrote down. One, I, I, I rag on the last half of this movie, but it got me, it got me the very last thing, or one of the last things that says of... Like the alpha male in the group is like, you came back. And then Tarzan says, I came home. It's so cheesy and dumb, but I loved it. I thought it was what so great. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the whole thing. This movie is about family, right? Mm -hmm. It's, and, and, uh, and earning, and earning your place. I don't know what, what your problem is, Kyle. No, it's such a bitter. I know the, the thing I wrote down, honestly, is like, I just find this so aggressively average of a movie that it just grates on me after a while. It's like, yeah, I get it. I know where this is going. I know how this is going to go. And there's, you're not doing anything to uh, engage me as a viewer. The other thing I put on, this is something I rarely bring up, but I want to bring it up for this movie, which is this is the rare film that I think should be longer than what it is. Mm. And I know we've kind of danced around this already. But even if we didn't do like the thing that would never have happened, which is like make this to be like two films, I really do feel like if there was even 15 minutes tacked onto this, I think we could have fleshed out some of these areas that I'm not as in love with and made it feel a little bit more, have a little bit more oomph at the, at the very end of it. Uh, make that love story feel a little bit more earned, uh, really get to understand our main villain character at the end and, and i think that would help out so for me it's more of a pacing problem i think more than anything else i mean the the, the budget frightens me so obviously i think yeah. that's a concern but you know it'd been interesting it, and this is impossible because it's disney but yeah if they just rein back a little bit like for example the 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 breaking of the camp percussion scene i mean you've got at least three solid minutes there to add a few touches, yeah, to paint a little bit of a deeper picture of Clayton and his motivations, other than just being uh, not just an egomaniac, but like a violent sort of, yeah, ape man, for lack of a better way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, not to constantly uh, raise the issue of like Pixar and stuff like that, but um, I think it's relevant here is like one of their biggest things is that they would constantly have their brain trust get together, watch rough cuts of their films and be like, 
take it out. Yes, it's a good scene, but it doesn't belong in this movie, so cut it out. And uh, I just, well, Disney just was not in a place to do that in the late 90s. Nobody uh, was. No. I mean, you know, uh, I was just talking to my psychiatrist about Star Wars, and he brought up exactly the same point. He's like, the first three Star Wars films, George Lucas had uh, a core group of directors, like Spielberg, um, mm-hmm. Scorsese. Apparently, they were all friends, and they yeah. all went through the scripts together. And he said the story is with the uh, first, you know, prequels is that nobody saw it. It's just pure hubris. He's like, I'm already George Lucas. You can all go, you know, fuck yourselves. And this is going to be a great movie. I have a feeling that Disney at this point, with the success of all of their musicals, uh, I don't think they care. <laughs> There's no, a true. sense where, I mean, they're they're taking this novel and they're just like, you know, like you said, we get two comedic. Uh, you know, side uh, characters, that's going to play. You get a super even villain, that's going to play. You get a love interest. Like, there's this formula. So, th- yeah, that's definitely a negative point. It, it, it feels a bit Want Want to know a weird bit of trivia before we go and talk about trivia? Sure. The elephant, Tantor, I believe is what the character's name is, voiced by Wayne Knight, Newman of, of Seinfeld, originally was cast with Woody Allen. Oh, and Willie Allen dropped out because uh, DreamWorks convinced him to come over and voice the main character of Ants instead. Ooh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, I mean, obviously there's rewrites and maybe even an animation yeah. uh, decision once Wayne Knight's in there, but it'd have been interesting to see a neurotic skinny elephant, uh, right? <laughs> right? Like to play there. It might have, I don't know. Those those things are weird. Whenever you hear about these casting decisions, uh Tom Selleck should have been Indiana Jones, but here we are. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has told us that we need to wrap this up. Uh, So I have one trivia thing, and I think Dave will have a couple here too. But I just wanted to say that the signature Tarzan yell is provided by Brian Blessed, the voice of the movie's villain. So I think that's interesting that he was the one who did the yell rather than uh, Tony Goldwyn instead of Tony Goldwyn. Goldwyn. All right. I'm sending you over some other trivia bits here, Dave. Sure. Originally, Sabor was shown killing Tarzan's father in the beginning of the movie, but the scene was removed. It can still be seen in the two-disc DVD. Uh, Sabor being the leopard, of course, that was stalking them. But that would have been an interesting choice, a bold choice to actually see the killing of the father. But Well, they already, I mean, it's interesting that they only did the father, but I mean, they show the dead bodies, which I thought was already surprising. You know, yeah. you could have implied that as well. So they were clearly... Maybe in the pitch process, it was going to be a much more violent and adult-themed story that they had to rein back to let Disney give them $130 million. Uh, While it is commonly assumed that Frank Welker supplied the animal vocal effects, most most notably for Sabor, he's not actually mentioned in the credits. And when specifically asked on his website if he did voice Sabor, he replied that he couldn't remember. He is, however, listed under a- additional voice talents in the spin-off TV series. Who's, who's Frank Welker? Okay, so Frank Welker, if you get into animation, which I was for a long time uh, on message boards and everything, Frank Welker is very well known in the North American animation depart- uh, uh, community because if you have ever heard an animal make a noise in an animated film in probably the last 30, 40 years, it was probably Frank Welker who did the voice of that animal. He is very well known for making realistic animal sounds. Yeah, if you hear a dog bark, cat meow, uh, uh, an elephant trumpet, it might be actually Frank Welker who's doing that in that animated project. 
And if you look at any TV show that's in North America, at some point, you'll probably see him as like a guest star in the credits somewhere. How do I describe verbally that my eyes have glazed over? <laughs> All right. Go, go talk about Kurosawa again. <laughs> you know, Mifune is like the best. He's like amazing. <laughs> he is amazing, but uh, out of context. Kyle. All right. Well, Dave, I think it's time for us to actually rate this movie. So what would you rate Tarzan on a scale of one to five? Or I guess 0.5 to five. Just quickly, uh, we usually ask whether this thing holds up today. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we didn't uh, We didn't actually ask and, that question. Uh, no, it's okay. I'm sure we've screwed up our form. At this point, it's free form. We know what know. we're doing. You can't tell us what to do, machine. How do you? Uh, I liked it, so. But I don't know if it's nostalgia. I don't know if this story. Yeah, it, it's, it's, like I said, it's aggressively average to me, so it's fine. But I yeah. don't have any love for this film at all. It's, it's self-contained enough that I think if my son was a bit older and watched it, he might still enjoy it. And the mm-hmm. animations, like, And then he would enough. start, like, skateboarding on trees. It'd be great. People still skateboard. Might be a thing. Um, <clears throat> just on the fact that I didn't fall asleep or get angry, I, I would. What is it, like two? I would go with a three. I, I think I would okay. give this movie a three. Yeah. So it's interesting. This, this is what I predicted at the beginning. Like it sounds like I'm so much more negative than you. I'm giving it a two point five. So I'm not like a, a, a huge difference away. But yes, it's uh, that's where we are. Uh, so two point five for me, three for you. That averages to two point seven five. So this one second here. Uh, so we have tied with one other movie, and I know exactly what you're going to say. It's tied with Notting Hill. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> tar- Tarzan. Yeah, Tarzan should go up. Well, what's your opinion, Kyle? I would put Notting Hill above, but I'm not like as in love with Notting Hill that I need to like stake my ground i don't know but seriously between the two which would you watch again notting hill 100 percent. wow how are we gonna break this tie i'll I'll concede this week because i think i might need a concession from you (laughs) in a couple weeks who knows maybe you've been looking ahead looking into your crystal ball not that any of this is planned or foreseen of course not no so that means that tarzan is going to enter into the number 11 spot in our in our list of movies we've watched in 1999. You can see our full list by going to our letterbox page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. KDVSTM is also where we are on Twitter and also on Instagram. Let's take a look at what we're going to be reviewing next week. Let me push this button. Oh, weird. Another another animated film next hmm. week we're going to be watching the iron giant i think you need to check your machine i'm pretty sure the iron giant did not come out the week after i i'm fairly sure it did not either not that i know intimately how 1999 works but it's, it feels yeah. like it was like a couple months later that the iron giant would have come out it's not like there's a spreadsheet for us to verify this stuff on but uh nah, not at all not at all uh i love the iron giant so i'm going to be very excited to talk about this next week can you just maybe cover your nipples at the very least? No, the, the whole point of a loincloth is for the nipples to be out. You know, you need it's, to get out more prude. This is, uh, don't nipple shame me. I go from the left to the right and it's like they, they follow me around the room. 